winding our way around the Civil War with the author of The Battlefield Atlas of the Civil War, Craig L. Simons, when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. Have you let your website go stale? Wish you didn't have to wait for your web developer to return your call when you want to update content? You don't have to. Now you can easily and instantly manage your own website content using affordable Avalar technology. Avalar is a website development and hosting company that provides turnkey internet solutions for companies like yours that need to stay focused on core business. Avalar gives you the power to control your website and make updates and additions in real time without having to learn HTML or other complicated programming tools. Websites powered by Avalar feature capabilities that attract more customers and enhance relationships with existing customers. Avalar offers a multitude of leading-edge solutions, including lead generation and referral tracking, shopping carts and payment processing, membership management, and search engine optimization, to name a few. Take advantage of the full power of the Internet using Avalar technology at www.avalar.com. That's A-V-A-L-A-R. Vitality is a natural expression of health, success, and fulfillment, and yet it's rare to meet people bubbling with vitality. That's because most of us push ourselves too hard, and when we trigger the internal alarms that tell us to change our diets, attitudes, or activities, we ignore them. Allowing outside pressures to override our internal alarms undermines our health, sabotages our success, and limits our potential. If you're ready to reclaim your natural vitality, to begin living a life you love, visit thevitalyou.com. You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. To speak with our show hosts or guests during the live show, call us toll-free in North America, 888-514-2100. Everywhere else, call 001-858-268-3068. Jerry Prokopovich on Civil War Talk Radio with our guest Craig L. Simons, historian at the U.S. Naval Academy. Craig, you've written uh, the Battlefield Atlas of the Civil War and some other atlases as well, I believe. Is yes, right? right. Now, we, were, we started talking about maps back uh, a segment or two ago and those wonderful American heritage maps from the 60s. Uh, I also remember many, for many years using the, uh, the West Point Atlas of American right. Wars. Now, maybe talking to a Naval Academy person, this is the wrong reference to bring up. <laughs> uh, but isn't that good? Doesn't that do the job? Why do we it need does. It does. War? I'll tell you what happened. The Battlefield Atlas of the Civil War came about because when I was teaching um, the Civil War course at the Naval Academy, I began uh, by trying to sketch out in general detail uh, on a chalkboard um, or occasionally on an overhead projector just to give general ideas of, you know, what's a turning m- movement? What do we mean by flanking and so forth? And uh, eventually I got so that I would draw these things out in advance and then just hand them out in class. And finally a student said, well, why don't you just prepare all these in a book and hand them out to begin with? And I thought, well, you know, that would be a useful thing to have. And so the Battlefield Atlas of the Civil War does not pretend to the kind of detail that the West Point Atlas of American Wars has. What it is is a general schematic that's 
that's designed to uh, accompany a narrative. And and one of the uh, design features that I, I insisted on in working with the publisher on this was that it's always annoyed me when reading narratives to have to flip back and find the map and see where that was and then flip ahead to the text again. So I wrote the text to fit on a single page, which is why it's in double column and pretty small print, uh, so that you could have immediate reference to the map and the text facing one another. So it's designed to be a teaching tool rather than a precise guide. It's, it's probably not as effective as a battlefield guide than many other more detailed things that exist now, but it's, a, I think, still, uh, after 20-some years, a pretty good introduction to those who are just trying to understand the overall uh, story of the overall narrative of the battle. And this focuses on battlefields. It's not the the war, uh, the strategic picture as much as a whole. Is that well, right? I do have a, a piece on the Anaconda plan and railroad mileage and things of that nature, sort of to give some background information. But no, it, you're right. It does. It focuses particularly on battles and battle scenes and and what decisions were made to move what troops to what position and what impact did that have and. To what extent did geography affect the outcome of the battle? Those kinds of things. But uh, if, if you've only got one page to describe it, it's, it's not in a, in a huge amount of detail. It's kind of an overview for people just getting into this sort of thing. Right. But it was very successful. It's still in print in the third edition after 20 years. And the publisher then prevailed upon me to do one for the American Revolution, which has also done very well. Right. And that was fun for me because the American Revolution is not a field in which I was quite as comfortable as I was in the Civil War. I had to go back and kind of research some of these. There are some Revolutionary War battlefields that are pretty darn remote. Uh, so I did that one, and then I did one more on uh, Gettysburg, and then finally did one uh, that's the uh, Naval Institute Historical Atlas of the U.S. Navy that is an atlas of naval battles from the American Revolution up to and including uh, the Gulf War. Did you visit many of these battlefields when you were almost all of them? I think there may be one or two that I I did not visit, but I I've tried to make it. I was trying to be as conscientious as I could, not only in gathering information about them and using contemporary maps whenever they were available, rather than subsequent maps, because the geography has changed a lot. I was thinking in particular of the map that I did for the Revolutionary War Atlas of Philadelphia. Well, the river and Philadelphia are entirely different now than they were in 1778. So. I had to go back and find original maps, and in almost every case visited the site of the battlefield, many of which, of course, don't exist any longer as battlefields, as you well know. No, that's true. It's certainly an issue. The uh, uh, Not long ago, I employed uh, some students of mine here at East Carolina to participate in the Blue and Gray Education Society's Battlefield Survey, right. where they're trying to collect information on all the 384 sites that the Park Service has identified and just get a basic level of information of what state of preservation these places are in. Some are beautifully preserved, and others are completely overdeveloped and right. are in between. Uh, and the same is true of Revolutionary War battlefields as well. And I would guess perhaps even more so there. Even more so, I would say, yeah. That, that people don't know them as well. Or they don't well, there isn't a group like uh, Civil War Preservation Trust that's out there doing things to save them, so they're just uh, they're just going away. And not the same constituency that, Correct. that these others have. Which, uh, which battlefields do you particularly uh, recall as, as most interesting to visit? Well, I take my students to Gettysburg every year, and, and I do that because geographically it's we can get there in two hours by bus. Uh, it's kind of fun. I, I, I tell them the uniform of the day is camouflage, so uh, we can tromp around in the brush a little bit. <laughs> so I come out there with a busload of 48 uh, midshipmen in camouflage uniform and 
the tourists kind of do a double take as they see these uh, soldiers. But uh, I, I think it, it's a great opportunity for them uh, because some of the decisions made on the Battle at Gettysburg by the Army commanders obviously had an impact, but so too did a number of decisions made by subordinate officers. And it's easier for them to see themselves in a subordinate officer's capacity, making a decision, the consequences of which could decide the outcome of the battle. So Gettysburg, because I know it so well, because it's close, uh, is probably the battlefield that I know best. You know, that I, I've heard of it being used for other sources. I once accompanied a, a corporate uh, retreat to Gettysburg yes. to do much the same thing. Right. I know there's some controversy about doing that. Well, I, I, I you know, I, I may be skeptical about the extent to which uh, decision making in the boardroom can be informed by uh, whether or not launching Pickett's Charge was a good idea. But I, anything that gets people out and in touch with American history, I'm for. So. I'm with you on that. Yeah. I think that's that's a very good way to look at it. The to get down in the weeds with at Gettysburg for a moment, the decision making there that you talk about with your students mm-hmm. is is certainly on one level the same. Uh, there there are analogies to be made, but somebody might say the technology is so different that uh, if Pickett's charge were launched today, uh, you know, one fire team could defeat it. Yeah, let me give you an example, perhaps, that's helpful. They, uh, they absolutely adore Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, and I think part of it is because he's been made an American icon thanks to Michael Schar and Ted Turner, but also because he really is an individual that they can identify with as someone who is a relatively low level of command responsibility, uh, who has a connection with his soldiers. They can stand on that ground and imagine 350 people here along this low rock wall. Uh, and... What is useful about that is his willingness to take upon himself certain responsibilities as a decision maker. For example, when Governor Warren rides down off Little Round Top to find a brigade to send to Vincent Spur, he encounters a strong Vincent who says, uh, where's, uh, you know, uh, looking for a particular unit? Well, I, I'm not sure, but, but what are your orders? Well, General Warren wants a brigade sent to yonder hill. And uh, Strong Vincent says, I'll assume that responsibility. Well, there's a moment where, regardless of technology, it's possible for a student to see, ah, yes. There comes a moment when, instead of passing the buck up the line and saying, what are my orders, what should I do, I'll wait till somebody tells me that I will accept the responsibility because I can recognize the circumstances here that need to be addressed immediately. And, and that kind of thing, I think, helps them appreciate uh, the burden of command decision-making. Now, what about uh, just to move 100 yards away on the same day, uh, General Sickles, in charge of Third Corps, looks yeah. out and says, I'm in a low spot like I was at Chancellorsville. They're going to shoot down at me again, right. and the West Pointers don't like me anyway. They've left me here yeah. hanging out again. Well, we have, I'm taking my corps up to the Peach Orchard without right. orders. We have great discussions about General Sickles. I occasionally have a student who will just fight tooth and nail to defend him and say he he did what he had to do. He wasn't getting the command guidance he needed. He was the one on the scene. He had to make the decision. Just what like makes the did. conversation more difficult, of course, is that he's kind of an obnoxious individual. So, <laughs> that, you know, rather than address the theory of at what point does a subordinate commander assume responsibility, it tends to fall into what a jerk he was, you know, so. so well, how does that work out, though? I mean, don't, it seems like you have two very good examples here of someone taking responsibility. Oh, I, I don't pretend to tell my students, here's, here's the answer to the question. Mm-hmm. History doesn't do that. What history does is exposes you to the complexity of the questions that exist so that you can address new questions with a context and a perspective that allows you to make a 
specific decision about that. If, if we said history gives us certain rules about when you do and when you don't do a certain thing, we're not history anymore. We're political science. That's right. <laughs> Interesting. And, and we don't want to do that. Uh, I mean, that's, well, that's a very strong point, I think, that, that if, if it were easy, then uh, it wouldn't take great uh, individuals to be great leaders if right. you just read the right. rules and do it. People sometimes ask me, well, what made Lincoln so great? Uh, mm. uh, was it you know, his upbringing in Indiana or New Salem? And my answer is the same. If I knew what made Lincoln so great, I'd be president of the United States, too. <laughs> uh, right. We'd all take a drink from that fountain if right. we knew where it was. Absolutely. But but we don't. We can only study it. Well, that I... I Impressed by that uh, description of how the students use that example and and how they uh, deal with well, it. Well, I hope they do. You know, you, you, I get some sense of what my students take from my class when they come back years later, often with their wife and children in tow, and introduce me to their kids and say, you know, Professor, I, you know, what I, those those things I learned in that Civil War class, I, I remembered those when I was. And then you can fill in the blank when I was operating against the uh, Iranians in the Persian Gulf or when I was chasing smugglers in the Gulf of Oman or whatever it was I was doing. And, and that's gratifying to think that uh, that it's made a difference. And I think it can. I think the study of history is an extraordinarily valuable lesson for uh, young officers. Well, and, and for all of us. Without it, without, and without it, there's no perspective. There's right. no sense. Uh, right. We have to invent everything uh, new. Now, there are people who are sort of natural leaders, I suppose. Um, you haven't asked me about Pat Claiborne, uh, who was, of course, uh, for lack of a better term, and, and uh, a non-professional, not a West Pointer, uh, who went to war along with his neighbors and friends because he felt that's what his community expected of him and became, uh, arguably at least, the most efficient division commander in the Confederacy. So uh, there are ways, I guess, individuals can... Can, can express natu- a sense of natural leadership. Although I will point out that Claiborne uh, was also an avid reader of history. And when he was reading for the law in uh, Helena, Arkansas, he also uh, used his, uh, uh, the library of the judge who was allowing him to use his law books to read the, his- the campaigns of Napoleon. So whether that had an impact or not, I couldn't say. Uh, and, and we know Lincoln certainly was, was interested in Another history, avid reader, Washington's absolutely. career well. Now, Claiborne, of course, is also often mentioned uh, in Civil War studies as the first notable Confederate figure to propose using African Americans as soldiers. Right. Is that accurate? Well, it, using African Americans as soldiers is, is uh, maybe too general a, a phrase. Uh, what Claiborne proposed was, was, frankly, emancipation. I mean, if you read that 50-page document that he wrote out and presented to the high command in January of 1864 at Dalton, Georgia, what he argued was that, look, we, our manpower resources are inefficient to the crisis we face. The only available body of manpower left to us is our, are the black slaves. Uh, they can be good soldiers, but why would they fight for a society that keeps their family enslaved? Therefore, better to make an end of it and just emancipate the whole race invite half a million or more of the black slaves to join the army and that way win our independence. Now, granted, we'd have to give up slavery, but I know that everyone in this room believes that the most important thing is southern independence and not slavery. Wrong. That that fell on deaf ears. That fell like a thud. So blacks obviously served in military capacities under other circumstances as cooks, as wagon drivers, obviously as... uh, as labor to dig entrenchments and so forth. But what Claiborne was proposing was an altogether different order of things, and very different, in fact, from the proposal that Lee 
encouraged on the Confederate Congress in the very last days of the Confederacy, in March of 1865, which was a proposal that blacks would be allowed to serve, and if they served honorably and after the South won, they, but only they, would receive their freedom. Claiborne's was entirely the other way around. Emancipate the entire race, then invite them to join the army and win our independence that way. But, of course, he was an immigrant, and I think less fully grounded in the complexity, the complex social uh, attitudes about slavery as a labor system. What do you make of the, I'll call it an urban legend, that there were, in fact, 30,000, 40,000 African Americans who fought for Well, themselves? it's simply not true, of course. We know that. Um, I, I can account for it in this way, that Southerners today... Um, rightfully are proud of their ancestors' sacrifice in the Civil War and don't want to say that my great-great-grandfather fought and died and bled for slavery. So they want it to be a more noble uh, goal. So they'll say Southern independence or states' rights or constitutional interpretation or things of that nature. And if it can be demonstrated that large numbers of African Americans fought for the Confederacy, that makes it true, then, that slavery was not the reason their ancestors fought. Of course, all they need to do is appreciate that there is a wide gulf between what causes a war and why men fight in it. It's possible to say, well, slavery was clearly the cause of the war, without which the sectional confrontation would not have taken the same course. But that's not to say that every soldier who bore arms for the Confederacy fought to preserve slavery. But in order to, I think, to help foster that notion that it wasn't about slavery at some level, they've grasped this straw that 30, I've heard as many as 60,000 uh, black Confederates served in the Confederate Army. It's simply not true. It, it, it's not, and the number does keep growing. Thirty. It does keep growing. Right? Yes. No. It, it, as long as you're not going to tell the truth, you might as well just keep expanding the number. I suppose. Well, Craig, it has been a real pleasure talking with you. I've learned a lot. I know our listeners have, and I look forward to a chance to do it again sometime soon. Thank you, Jerry. It was a lot of fun. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. 